0: Are you ready for an interview with creative people to Carolina? It's Carolina Stories. All right, giddy up. We've got a good one for you today. We sit down with Scott Wingo, a four-time entrepreneur and someone who's helped pioneer the North Carolina startup scene. He's been involved in the PC industry, consumer internet, e-commerce, and now on-demand services as the CEO and co-founder of Spiffy. He's also an active angel investor and a board member at the Green Share Project, which is a nonprofit focused on helping the homeless. Scott is no stranger to podcasts. He hosts both the Jason and Scott show as well as Vehicle 2.0. Both are fantastic and worth checking out. You can also find Scott on Twitter at Scott Wingo with one T and Scott. Okay, let's dig in. I want to start with Spiffy. For those that aren't familiar with the company, can you give the quick synopsis?
1: Yeah, so Spiffy is uh, what I call an on-demand car care company. We started with Wash and Detail. We've added oil change, and then we're building a what I call a third-party marketplace of other service providers to also help take care of your car. Um, so for example, let's say we washed your car and we noticed you had some windshield chips. We could have our partner, Safe Light, come out and take care of those using the same you know, framework that you use to uh have Spiffy come. So like any on-demand company, like an Uber or Lyft, primarily app based, but we don't have to be. So you can use our website or call or chat. And we're entirely mobile. So we come to you um, at your convenience, at your home office. We work with a lot of fleets, so we, we have a B2B component of what we do. The other aspect of Spiffy that's kind of unique is we decided pretty early on that if you want someone in your car, which is usually one of your top three assets you own, you don't want them to be just kind of a random person. So so Uber and Lyft use this model called 1099 or contractors. So they're, they're not really employees of Uber and Lyft. Because of that, there's only certain things that they can ask them to do and not do. So we can go a step further. So wearing uniforms, go through training follow processes and procedures and background checks and whatnot so they are our employees and we decided to go with that model
0: got it and sticking with the decision to make the technicians w2 employees was it just the customer focus or were there other contributing factors as well the
1: company I started before Spiffy is called Channel Advisor. And we're Amazon's biggest partner on their marketplace. So I've had this front row seat at Amazon and watching what they've built and, and I've interacted with, you know, literally hundreds of, of companies. And Amazon's the most unique company I've ever had the the benefit of working with. And I've learned a ton from how they approach things. And every company says this, but Amazon like really lives it. They're they're obsessed with that customer experience. So when we started thinking about Spiffy, another input was there was a company in 2012 in Silicon Valley that launched that was going to be Uber for car wash, and they were called Cherry. And they raised like $6 million. They had a great launch. Their app was fantastic. Uh, In some ways, it could actually be ahead of where we are today. But then the user experience fell apart because, you know, you would order, you'd go through this great ordering process. And then literally, they did a 1099 model. So some random person would show up at your house Kind of wearing a hoodie and jeans, uh, and they'd have a little bucket and sponge, and say, you know, hey Steve, I'm here to wash your car. Can I come in and get some water? At that point, you're kind of like. You know, uh, I could just do this myself and it actually would be easier than kind of having to deal with this whole situation. You know, what we're trying to get to is this kind of 10x better experience to really be able to change the, the consumer's behavior and, and create something that's stickier than, than what they're doing previously. So, so as we thought about that and watched that failure cycle those guys went through, they wound down and got acquired by Lyft. Funny story, the founder of that company is actually the founder of Bird, the scooter company. His name's Travis. There's two Travises in the on-demand world. There's Uber Travis, uh, Kalanick, and then uh, I forget this Travis's last name, but he's the Bird slash Cherry uh, Travis. So when we were starting Stiffy, we looked at that. And as car wash operators, what the customer wants is their car to look almost brand new. So if you're going to try to deliver that, you you really have to train someone and give them the right equipment to do it. So that was the kernel of the idea was kind of starting at the customer and working backwards.
0: Perfect. And you mentioned channel advisor. So you had kind of a 15 plus year run in e-commerce. Why did you decide to transition to on-demand services? Like, What gets you excited about the category?
1: Yeah so so as a so I've been through several waves as an entrepreneur I've been at this a long time my first company was called Stingray Software and there was this big move from you know everything being on the PC to this model called client server and we kind of rode that wave uh, then my second company was during the internet bubble so we rode that wave and then you know channel advisor rode the e-commerce wave so I'm always kind of looking for these big Tectonic changes because they create opportunities. So, as an e-commerce guy, you know, over kind of last fifteen to twenty years, we've seen products go digital. And what I mean by that is, you know, if you think back before e-commerce, and even as recently, kind of even before the smartphone, the smartphone really caused this huge inflection point. The, the way it used to work is someone in New York at Macy's would decide, you know, the big thing this winter is going to be purple leather jackets. Every store, that's what they had. And then, you know, someone would follow those guys. Um, so as a consumer, all this stuff was pushed down to you and you had very limited choices of what you could do. So So when something goes digital, part of that is it flips that to the customer now having all the power. Now you have infinite power. You can look at you know, 800 shoe sites, you can build your own, you can customize, the selection goes up. Um, and then other aspects of digital are obviously you can use your phone, you can get things faster, easier. Um, it, it really kind of changes the way the industry works. So, having lived through that, um, I had my first Uber experience in 2011. And for me, that was kind of a light bulb moment because, you know, I have a house like anyone else and I have a car and, you know, like anyone, I consume a lot of services. And once you start to have these great digital experiences with e-commerce, these services experience really, you know, the friction that they have is illustrated. So the next time, you know, whenever you order a plumbing service or an electrician or anything like that, you're just like, oh my God, I wish this was as easy as the Starbucks app. So all that was swirling around, had my first Uber experience. And I was like, you know, these guys have nailed it. I took out my phone, I pressed a button. And in five minutes, I got from point A to point B. That that's amazing. I want that experience for every service in my life. And what's exciting about services is if you look at GDP, I'm kind of an armchair economist. If you look at GDP and gross domestic product, if you remember your macroeconomics, consumer products are about five trillion, consumer services are 10 trillion. So so we have this opportunity, and when I talk about tectonic, I don't think it gets even more tectonic than this, you have this this part of the economy that's twice the size of physical products that is super analog, super bad customer experiences, and just ripe for disruption. So it's like a $10 trillion opportunity. The other thing that excites me about it is e-commerce has laid all the foundational groundwork for services going digital. And it took e-commerce 20 years to get to kind of 20%. We're recording this during the pandemic and e-commerce is having kind of a pandemic moment where we're seeing, I think we're going to come out of it. And E-commerce has been hovering at kind of like 15, 18% of, of utilization. I think it's going to spike up to 20, 25%, which is where you see countries like Asia uh, you know, or China and the UK at. So we don't think twice in our lives about ordering a product on our phone and being on Amazon Prime and all that kind of thing and sharing our payment information and we have 4G going to 5G, we have broadband in our house, Uh, you know, you and I are doing a live video conference. So so all this foundation stuff is there and when services go digital, it's gonna happen, you know, in orders of magnitude faster than we saw products go digital. So if e-commerce took kind of 20 years, I think this is going to be five years and it's going to happen really, really fast. So those are the things, kind of the macro trends that get me really excited uh, about this space and and what we're building with Spiffy.
0: I love it. Yeah, you mentioned that magical Uber experience the first time you used it. And Matt Kohler, who was formerly with Facebook and then I think Benchmark, he used to say the smartphone is like a remote control for real life where you just press a button and something happens. Um, And this is a perfect example of that. Exactly. Um, we
1: we want to be the car button.
0: On that point, why car care? Why do you think it's an industry ripe for disruption? And it, is the car your version of the Amazon bookstore where in the future you get into house cleaning and pet grooming and on-demand barbershop, for instance?
1: It could be. When, we were, when I was kind of thinking about this, one input is I, I actually own a car wash. So in 2003, a partner and I bought a car wash. Really, as a diversification thing, this was during the time Channel Advisor was 2001 to 2015. So, in that time, you know, I diversified. I figured if I'm going to be way out on the risk spectrum with what I'm doing, I need something on the other end. It's called a a barbell, or some would say a dumbbell strategy. I ended up buying a car wash, uh, and I was a silent partner and had a a partner operating that. And then we built another one. So, I'd been in the car wash industry. So, then after having that kind of first Uber moment, I was like, you know, services go digital. What would make sense to tackle? And the thing about things around the home is they're they're pretty well penetrated, right? So there's a bazillion electricians and plumbers. Sure, you could do a better version of that. And there's, there's even a company in the triangle called Comfort Monster that, that's kind of taking a shot at this. It's a digital founder kind of who bought an HVAC company that's kind of applied some of these same things to it. So we're looking at that and looking at cars and the problem with the home is from my e-commerce experience, what you learn is FedEx and UPS, they don't make money at residential deliveries. They lose money. And the reason why is there's this fundamental metric of, they use this metric of truck stops. How many stops can a truck make or deliveries can a truck make a day? In a residential setting, it's something like 50 or 60. In a B2B setting, it's something like 200, effectively you know, that's like the businesses they can get to. If you amplify it by the people in those businesses, it's probably like they're effectively doing, you know, 2000 people deliveries or something like that. So, so I kind of had that. And I was kind of like, you know, the home, I'm not really sure about. So then we started thinking, well, with the car, what's that going to look like? You know, we you kind of think it's going to be the home, but maybe there's something else we can do there. So that's kind of how we landed on the car. You know, also, I, I think, it's important to pick a, a fight that you can win, um, you know. So, so you're going to get a fight, you know, don't don't pick the guy that's been lifting weights all his life or whatever. <laughs> I'm the 50 pound weakling guy, you know. So, so that's one of the things I think Uber did that was genius is the the fight they picked was with the traditional cab companies who had they they couldn't give two craps about their customers, you know. So, so started thinking about all that. And when you really think about your worst customer experiences, they do come from car care. So, so, so all those things kind of added up to that was kind of an interesting area to go explore.
0: That makes a lot of sense. Um, And you mentioned we're recording this during the pandemic. One of the things I'm so impressed by is how quickly you've responded to the demand shocks of COVID-19. It's kind of like a real time entrepreneurial case study. Um, and I definitely want to explore that thread before we get there. Maybe you can kind of give us a snapshot of the scale of the company, uh, late last year before the YLL merger.
1: Yeah. So, uh, so last year we acquired, uh, one of our competitors called YLL and going into that, we were in, let's see, 15 markets and had about 200 folks. Um, so YLL essentially, um, added another hundred. So we had 300 and then it added, we had a lot of overlap, um, but it added two locations. So call it 18 locations. Um, part of our model has got a very geographic component to it. But so by location, I mean a city like Raleigh, Charlotte, Atlanta, LA, et cetera. Um, so we are in 18 markets and 300 technicians.
0: And you raised about 25 or $30 million in capital up to that point?
1: Yeah, we've raised about 30 million.
0: Excellent. And um, how did the business break down from a category perspective? So you have office parks versus fleet management versus kind of at home.
1: Yeah. And uh, it helps to maybe tell a little bit of the story there. So so we launched our app in 2014. And again, I wasn't really sure, you know, if this had been a residential thing, I wasn't really sure it was going to be that scalable and venture backable. But what we realized really quickly is as traditional car wash operators, 80% of your business is on the weekend. So, you know, we kind of geared up for that. We're like, all right, we're gonna launch our app in 30 days. We're gonna to have to hire all these folks to work weekends. We did, did all that and then we launched the app and we got zero weekend services, but everyone wanted their car washed at work on Thursday. <laughs> so, so it's kind of funny. This is why, you know, in, in startups, we talk about minimum viable products. Because, you know, what I've learned over and over again is you cannot predict consumer behavior. It's just unpredictable. So the faster you can get something out there and stop trying to predict and get data is way better than spending infinite time trying to guess what people are going to do. So we did that and that came back. And then, you know, entrepreneurial journey journeys are roller coasters and we're like in a heck of a one on the pandemic side we'll talk about. But, but here's an example of that roller coaster. So we're like, okay, this is really interesting. People really want their car wash while they're at work. Who knew? Um, and you know, I view that as a huge positive because it means that we're, you know, at a physical car wash, we're actually forcing them to do something they don't really want to do. You know, their optimal is come to me at work and we're saying, no, come to us on the weekend, sacrifice your family time. You know, there's a lot of stuff associated with that. So we said, okay, well that's, you know, that's what they want. Then we started going to these office parks and invariably every one of them drove us away and essentially said, we do not allow detailers on site. So I had, I had underestimated the negative connotation around traditional detailers. So what we heard over and over again from these office parks, um, they're managed by these companies called property management firms. So like JLL, CBRE, there, there's all these property management firms. And they they sometimes own the building, but mostly they're kind of like you know the policy and the managers and the leasing agents of the building. So what they said is we don't allow detailing because sketchy people in sketchy vans with no insurance and they create an environmental problem. So we had to go and knock down all those objections. Um, Our initial spiffy vans were white with a blue penguin. And what we learned is we had to get our brand as far away from those detailers as possible. So if you see one of our vans today, it is um, a blue van with kind of a more white penguin. So it it like really is step order functions away from that look of a traditional detailer. And we, we choose a van format that doesn't look like a box van. Number two is we we get over the you know the sketchy thing with background checks and uniformed technicians that are trained. Insurance was easy to get over. We just got a, a policy that exceeded their their minimums. The hardest part was uh, the environmental. So. We kind of, you know, this was interesting because we we went around the horn a couple different ways here. And where we landed was, we tested, there's a lot of different ways you can wash a car. Some of them don't require kind of water. So we tested those and we weren't really happy with them. And we landed back on water. What we did is we said, all right, we're kind of married to water because it has the best outcome for the car. How can we solve this? So we used very little water. We used green chemicals. And the innovation was we we designed a van that has a tank on it uh, with all the water we need, the fresh water. And what we do is we bring your vehicle to a mat. Uh, We developed this mat. So think of, you know, kind of like a tarp that you would drive your car on that has a lip to it. So it's like a little bathtub for your car. So we do the service on that mat. It catches all the runoff. We suck that water out of there, back up onto the truck into a separate dirty water vessel. And at the end of the day, we run all that water through a reclamation system. This is exactly what you do at a physical car wash. We just kind of adapted. We kind of hacked a mobile version of that, if you will. So that got us into this office park channel, which has been the largest way we get to consumers. So we do residential still. We do office park. Then we introduced oil change in 2017. And we'd done a little bit of fleet before then, kind of rental car companies. But oil change just really dramatically changed our business because what we discovered is these very large fleets have a huge oil change problem. You know, you need to change your oil every three to 5,000 miles. As consumers, you're kind of like, ah, that's every like six to eight months, not a big deal. But when someone's driving a car, a rental car, you know, 12 hours a day, now you're doing it like every two weeks. So that's a lot of oil changes. <laughs> the way the problem works is they have a mechanic on staff, but mechanics get paid 50 bucks an hour to be a certified mechanic. And the last thing you want someone like that working on is an oil change. So they end up not working on them themselves. They accumulate over time. Their software won't let them rent the cars out. So they just sit there. And then after kind of call it eight to 10 days, they start valuing them to a jiffy loop. So on average, these cars are sitting there 10 days and chewing up a bunch of labor to get back and forth to Jiffy Lube. So our value prop is pretty simple. We, we learned that if we can come and say, hey, you know, you really care about fleet utilization. And when those cars are sitting there for eight, bu- eight days, they're losing 50 bucks a day. So it's actually costing you $500 to valet these to Jiffy Lube. What if we came on site and knock them out for you in 24 hours? So that's a really long way of saying uh, by the end of last year, we had about Uh, 75% of our business was fleet, primarily rental car companies, and then 20% would be office parks, uh, and then the other 5% was residential. That was the mix kind of pre-pandemic.
0: Wow. Yeah. So then COVID-19 hits this year, so... About 95% of the business is impacted pretty significantly. I mean, the rental car demand has plummeted with, as travel has kind of gone down. And then um, the office park segment, I'm sure, has been hit because everybody's working from home. So, what steps did you take to respond to that?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, and it's, you know, so I've lived through the dot com bubble burst, 9 um, 11, and then the 08, 09 recession. And in those, you kinda, yeah, I'm a big CNBC junkie. And in those, you could kind of like if you watch CNBC closely, well, 9-11 was just kind of a shock, right? But the the you know the other two kind of more economic ones, they happened over the span of months. So this is literally in in under, you know, in 21 days, our revenue went down 95%. So so that's that's a very rapid shock to the system. So, so what we did is we mobilized very quickly and yeah, you know, we we just started talking to our customers and trying to understand. So for example, the rental car companies, you know, we we knew that there was a huge decline there. But they came to us and they said, A customer called, they're COVID positive and they had this car. We don't know what to do with it. What do we do? We didn't know either. Uh, you know, we've learned a lot about this now. The thing that kind of saved our bacon is number one listening to customers, but then number two is we had chosen a chemical partner that was in the US. Because whenever we can buy US made stuff, I kind of have a personal policy that that's a good thing. Um, So they actually make it here and everything. It's not just a front end to a Chinese manufacturer. So that saved our bacon in two ways. Number one, we could still get chemicals. So a lot of our competitors can't get chemicals because the the Chinese supply chain is still broken as as of the time we're recording this. So it's been broken for like almost 60 days now. Then number two is we went to them and they have, uh, we're in the auto care division, but they actually have a janitorial division that janitorial divisions, biggest customers are hospitals. So they, they were actually ahead of the game and had a, a family of four products that are these super antivirals that can kill things like SARS, MERS, and H1N1. So then the CDC and EPA very quickly uh, certified those chemicals for treatment on COVID-19. So then that allowed us to go... To take those products, make sure they were good for the car, and we've done a ton of testing on that, and then understand their pros and cons. For example, some of them only work on hard surfaces, some of them work on hard and soft, some of them have more of a, a shield factor. Um, some of them kind of get all, you know, so we have a fogging product that gets in every in every you know possible part of the car, etc. So and then there's different odors. You know, we found our customers are very sensitive to different odors. Some of them have kind of a, uh, you know, like a chlorine smell. Some have more of a lysol smell. Some of them have a lemon smell. So people react to all of that differently. So then we were able to take those and then go to our rental car partners and then start, you know, actually being able to say, here's exactly what you need to do when this car is decontaminated. And then because of that, we started, you know, advertising that capability. Then we started to get questions of, You know, I have a delivery company and I've got six people in this truck through the day and they, you know, they don't want to work in these trucks because they're worried that the guy before them, you know, there's this chain of, is this car infected or not? So then we've we've helped with that. Then what happened is we had a rental uh, company, a truck rental company. You know, they had a COVID positive person rent a truck. We decontaminated the truck. Then they said their retail staff actually wouldn't go in the store because that person had obviously been in the retail store. So we can actually use this fogging product uh, to to decontaminate facilities. So we've added that line as well. The other thing we did is I mentioned we were in eighteen cities. Five of those, we had our full offering, the consumer offerings, office, park, and residential, as well as fleet. And then fleet was so popular, the next kind of 12 or 13 cities, uh, we only did fleet stuff. So one of the big levers we pulled when the pandemic came is we kind of said, well, if fleet's going to go down 95%, residential is going to be where we have to really focus. We're going to add residential to those 17 markets. So we we did that very, very quickly. That was kind of essentially a bunch of all-nighters to do that in, in a span of two weeks we previously thought that would be kind of a six month thing with this very progressive rollout, but we just kind of pulled the lever as hard as we could on that. So those are some of the steps we took to remediate the impact of, of the pandemic. You know, we haven't hundred percent remediated it. So you know, I think if we did nothing, we'd be down 95%. We're down about 65%. And it seems like we've bottomed out and I, I'm optimistic that some of these things will start to, you know, you know, the next stop would be hopefully we could be down 50% and then
0: 40 and 30 and, and get back to where we were before. And so in early March, you also announced a strategic investment from Shell. Was that timing coincidental or did you have a sense that the fundraising environment m- may change and you wanted to kind of boost liquidity?
1: It was kind of coincidental. So um, it was also like on the, you know, randomly it was on the day that oil kind of tanked. So, so that was kind of a bad timing. So, so big companies move very slow. So we had done a round in June of last year, led by Tribeca. And they came in on that round, you know, they kind of verbally told us in July and then it took three or four months to get it done. And then it took three or four months to get it announced. So so that was very much a, you know, announcing something that had kind of been unprocessed for the last six months.
0: Got it. And as an entrepreneur, how do you navigate the various economic cycles and fundraising environments? I mean, so from Spiffy's launch basically through the beginning of this year, capital was extremely cheap. It was kind of a grow at all costs mindset. In my opinion, startups were trading marketing dollars for dimes in many instances. And my understanding is that you've always been someone who focuses on crazy things like profits and unit economics. And so how do you balance rapid growth with, and expansion with also growing profitably, especially if competitors are acting in uneconomic fashions?
1: Yeah, so, so one of the nice things about, I told you that story about Cherry that failed in Silicon Valley. So there was kind of two parts to that story. Not only did we kind of see them fail and say, hey, we think we know what they did wrong, but what's happened is we do not have a well funded competitor out of Silicon Valley because the conventional wisdom is, uh, and I don't know if you ever watched the TV show Silicon Valley, but it's very true to like, you know, the kind of this limbing thinking kind of thing that goes on out there. Their conventional wisdom is if Travis, the CEO of Bird, couldn't do this, then no one can. So, so we don't, you know, so my, my fear as a entrepreneur in the Southeast is I'm going to face this kind of irrationally funded company out of, out of Silicon Valley. So we're fortunate in that Berg's failure kind of cleared the decks for that. And we don't face a well-funded competitor. So that gives us the space to kind of make our own decisions. So we don't wake up every day worried about, Oh my God, this competitor is doing more than we are. So, so then, you know, we, 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 we always go with the fundamentals of, and it depends on the kind of building business you're building, you know, so, so at Spiffy, what's nice is, you know, you can think of us as this portfolio of cities and if we get the unit economics, right. Then, you know, to your point and by unit economics, I mean, you know, are we, what's our gross margin on a service basis? What's our utilization and how do you get there? You know, of our, you know, for example, of our 18 cities before the pandemic hit, we had like eight that were profitable in, in generating cash flow. So so we knew the model work. So then it becomes a question of, well, you know, when you're losing money, you're just adding cities and you're, you know, you're betting on, you know, most of those will get to profitability and, and whatnot. So then when you when you stop growing, you can dial back and hopefully land on a platform of profitability. That that's what that gives you. You know, there there's a lot of businesses that are software as a service and, and channel visor is too. The hard thing there is you you make these kind of six month investment cycles so it makes it harder to course correct than than a business like spiffy so you'll go through uh you know for example raise capital and then you say you know part of that capital the the thing about uh, software as a service is you have to hire tons of salespeople because they're going to go do all these deals and you pay them today for the deals. They're going to kind of generate money over the next two years. <laughs> so that's what creates these losses in a software as a service business is you're, you're kind of making these huge investments in sales reps. So your expenses go way up and then they don't really pay for themselves until maybe eight months you get to a little bit of break even. And then they, you really get kind of profitable on that sales rep in 18 months. So, so the problem there is if you're in the cycle where you've raised capital and hired a bunch of people and, you know, inevitably Murphy's law is these things come at the worst possible time. Now you're at this trough of, you've got all these junior salespeople that are on your payroll that you're paying for, for deals that come down the road. An economic event happens. Now you're gonna have higher churn, your sales rep productivity is gonna go down. It it makes it much harder to scale scale back to a profitable position. So every business is a little bit different and you know, the unit economics, there's a timeframe to them too. And if those are longer timeframes that makes you much more exposed, I think to, to these various um, economic impacts.
0: Yep. And so now the environment has kind of shifted all the way to the other end of the spectrum where it's a great time to find talent and ad prices have kind of collapsed. But as you alluded to, demand is also way down. And so how do you try to balance investing for growth and, um, and going after these, uh, these initiatives, but also ensuring that you maintain the runway to get to the other side?
1: Yeah, so, so my job as CEO is, um, you know, the, the foundational job is to make sure the entity survives no matter what. Um, you know, even if you're in this like kernel of a hunker down mode, you, you've got to survive to get through whatever kind of economic hardships are. So as this pendulum is swung, you know, right now I would say it's, it's kind of preserve cash, um, figure out, you know, experiment uh, and find these things that are going to remediate what's going on with our other channels. So, you know, I gave you some examples of that, you know, 30 days ago, if you had said you're going to be doing facilities decontamination, I would say, what, why would we, that's, that's not something we'd ever do, but here we are. So, yeah. So then, you know, it is, it is a good time to hire people. You know, if I wasn't, you know, we're kind of six months into this. Um, if, if I was an entrepreneur, this is a great time to actually start a company because you're going to have tons of talent out there. So I, I think it's kind of for that earlier in the curve entrepreneur, a great time for that. For us, we have definitely seen, you know, uh, another thing that's been kind of nice is, we you know, to acquire residential customers, you have to do some more direct consumer marketing. The prices of that have come way down. So we're, we're about to do a lot more experimenting and scaling that up because the, you know, the, there's just no one else out there competing for that right now.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And then to borrow the terminology from Ben Horowitz, would you kind of identify more as a peacetime or a wartime CEO?
1: I think I can kind of go in and out of both. <laughs> in in peacetime, you're spending a lot of time fundraising and you're kind of like the, you know, the spokesperson of the company. In wartime, you have to go into heavy execution mode and kind of like, you know, make sure that everyone's aligned and we're going after these things and we're saying yes to a lot more random stuff now than we normally would, but we still have to say no to stuff. That's definitely kind of not going to be part of the lifeboat going forward.
0: Got it. And then, um, shifting to culture, how do you maintain the culture of the company through periods of the rapid growth that you saw in 2019, particularly with the merger, which took your, um, kind of technicians from 200 to 300. Yeah,
1: culture is one of those really tricky things where, so so as a, you know, I have an engineering background um, and I have kind of a ironic sense of humor, if you will. So one of my favorite movies is Office Space. And, you know, I was an intern at, at a company called NCR and you get your badge and it has their, their principles on it, you know, and it's like, don't lie, don't steal. And, you know, somewhere in there, it's like, think about the customer. <laughs> Well, you know, that we're so far removed from our customer. I had like, first of all, my, my kind of my smart alecky thing was like, why are we hiring people that steal and lie? You know, why, why does that have to be part of our values? And you know, where are we finding these people? So, so what I found is, you know, there's this kind of cheesy aspect of putting these things in writing. And, and I, I try to do it more by, by leading by example. So the way we've we've captured a lot of that is really in the people. So, so the, the people are your emissaries on culture, and that's really what sets the tone. You can write a bazillion things and have a lot of cute acronyms and those kinds of things, um, and it's really not going to change the behavior of folks. And if anything, it'll actually kind of swing it the other way. Um, they'll Many times they'll use that kind of stuff against you, if you will. So, so that's been a large part of it. So when we've opened up different areas you know, what you find is there's always people in the company that are like, you know, hey, uh, I've always wanted to live in Las Vegas and I'd love to, you know, move from North Carolina to Las Vegas. You're like, wow, that's, you know, not something I want to do, but you know, more power to you. We'd love for you to go do that. So as we've opened up about half of our locations have had a spiffy person that kind of goes and does that, that that's super important because that, that puts your DNA just kind of right out there. The other ones that don't, we bring people in for a fair amount of training. um, And, you know, part of the training is really hands-on here's our process and procedures, but then we make sure half that training is really cultural of why do we do what we do? How do we think about things, and whatnot. The the only company I have found that, that has something to this that you don't look at and say, well, that's super cheesy is Amazon. They have this, these, uh, 15 or 17 management principles. And what I like about them is they're, they're, they're relatively precise and detailed, but then they also have a positive example and a negative example. And I find that super helpful to kind of help everyone understand these things. And you know, the customer's always right. Well, are they really, you know, what if, you know, in the Amazon context, what if they buy a thousand shoes and return them all, you know, is that customer still right? Like when, at some point you have to, you have to have common sense on that. And they do a really good job of saying, here's examples where the customer's always right. You know, did we make a mistake? Yes. Well, then we need to make the customer good. Now, certainly there are, you know, a small percent of really bad customers and here's what they look like and here's what we do. I I find that, that much more helpful. It it makes it longer and, you know, I wish it would all fit on a badge but it actually makes it usable and digestible um, by folks out in the field.
0: And one more on Spiffy before we transition, but I know you're a fan of Jim Collins. What What do you think, or how would you describe Spiffy's kind of flywheel or algorithm to start generating, accumulating advantages?
1: Yeah, so, so I would say I'm a big believer in these customer experiences of word of mouth. So um, we're pretty obsessed by ratings, and ratings are really tricky because you know, what you find is if you look at it across the internet, you've got Yelp and Google and Facebook are kind of like the big three repositories of ratings. But what I found is they're, they're really, it's so hard to leave a rating on those sites and they're they're unvalidated. So you, there's no validation that this person was actually a customer that you end up with. People have to be really, really angry to be able to go fill out one of those ratings. So, so it's very hard to get them over a 4.0 because in today 's world, you know another thing I think a lot about is our our customers is this convenience oriented consumer they 're choosing us because they want it to be fast and easy. So, if I then go ask you to spend thirty minutes rating us on yelp that, that's you know that 's kind of a little counterintuitive to what we would do so So, what we do, we want that customer visibility. so what we decided early on is we rate gate the payment so no matter what service you do, we collect your credit card up front, we authorize the credit, but we don 't charge your card until you give us a rating because we really, really want that to be four or five stars, if at all possible, if you're not happy, we want to know about it and fix it before we even collect payment. So that, that's just kind of part of our DNA. So because of that, we get a good 70% of our customers rate us through the app on a five-star system with a verbatim. And you know that, that effectively, there, there's this whole system called Net Promoter Score, you're probably familiar with it, and it has us, it, it's kind of the, the way to think about it is, how do you measure that, that word of mouth um, so 100 is like the most, high, the highest score and there's a negative side to it as well. It, funny story. You know, we, we, talked earlier about car care and why do we get into it? You know, we, we study net promoter score and you look at Amazon and Apple, they have kind of like high eighties on that promoter score on a regular basis. So then I was like, well, I wonder what like Jiffy Loop's net promoter score is. It's like minus 80 blended. Um, and then females, it's like minus 95. It's like literally, I'd never researched the other end of the spectrum of net promoter score, but that's where kind of traditional car care lives. So, so uh, again, hopefully we've picked a fight. We can, we can win. So, so we take those ratings, we get this really rich rating data, um, which is awesome. And then that gives us, uh, you know, when we translate that to a net promoter score, you know, we're, we're in that kind of high eighties. So that's a very long answer to saying if we can really delight our customer, then we don't have to do any marketing because of the word of mouth. So that's part of the flywheel is, you know, get customers, make them crazy happy and then they'll bring more customers. The other part I probably underestimated um, is when you have uh, you know, we have like 210 trucks. When you have 210 trucks driving around with giant six foot penguin branding and whatnot on it, you know, it it is essentially free, free advertising. Um, So we get a lot of this kind of pickup business from that. And then the third one is, uh, I I don't know if you have a significant other, but let's say you went to work, got your car cleaned at work and came home. Your significant other is going to be like, wait a minute. You know, I, you know, now my car looks like trash and you have a new car. I, I'm going to have Spiffy come out this weekend. So I call that pin action. So when we're in these office parks doing a lot of this work, it causes these at-home services kind of for free uh, because everyone's spouse or girlfriend or whatever, you know, they, uh, they're they like, I want a car wash as well. So if I was going to draw that, there's kind of like three things that happen there. So great word of mouth, the trucks drive a lot of kind of the flywheel, uh, and then also this kind of knock-on effect out of the office parks.
0: I love it. Well, we've talked a little bit about Amazon so far, and they're obviously extremely dominant. You've been following them closely for 20 plus years. I think they have something like 40 or 50% of e-commerce share in the U.S. Um, but history is filled with technology companies that were dominant until they weren't anymore. Um, so I want to explore a hypothetical pre-mortem. I mean, if you, uh, and let's focus on the retail side of things. So assume AWS was spun off. But if you had a pain a scenario over the next five or 10 years where, Amazon loses its way from a competitive standpoint and the moat erodes a bit, or how would you go about that?
1: Yeah, it's really tricky because Jeff Bezos is a big reader of Clay Christensen's innovator dilemma book, right? So, so he's actually baked into their culture that that won't happen. So, so prime example uh, a good example. I won't use the word prime. <laughs> a, a good example is Amazon was the largest book seller. Um, and then they decided to do eBooks. That's, you know, no other company would do that. Um, because it just that's the innovators dilemma, right? This is why Barnes and Noble didn't do eBooks until they kind of like had to, but the counter example of that is you say, look, here's a better user experience. We have to admit that. And then if we're, we're the first there, then that's the right thing for the customer versus protecting our business model. So it's hard for me to come up with an example because what, what would have to happen is there had to be a better customer experience of some kind that Amazon didn't adapt to. And and so I do think there are examples of better customer experiences, but the thing is Amazon adapts to them very quickly. So that that's going to be the trick is it would have to be under the radar enough that Amazon wouldn't see it. Um, and then it would catch them, you know, it'd have to be too late for them to catch up. So that too late part's tricky too, because when you have a trillion dollar, you know, they're a trillion dollar company now, it's very hard for anything to be kind of out of their reach. Yeah. So so some examples though, there are examples of this. So uh, probably the best example, example, one of my favorite ones is Zappos. You know, so so Zappos essentially said, look, you know, we're going to go build a better shoe. We're going to really focus on shoes. We're not going to be the cheapest, but we're going to have the best selection and the best return policy, and that was a better customer experience. And Zappos got to about a, I think a two hundred million dollar return rate or a run rate, and then Amazon bottom. Another good example uh, is diapers.com, where they they discovered you know that you know it, when you when you have a, a little kid, uh, it's essentially. The diapers element's interesting, but it's really the subscription model. Um, they really kind of nailed subscriptions before Amazon got it, and they realized it was a better user experience. And then Amazon just like kind of pummeled them over the years and ultimately bought them because they were just smashing them in the face over and over again, um, driving down the price. So so those are examples of companies that have kind of been able to compete with Amazon. But then again, that's that second part that's tricky of, you know, can you do it long enough that they don't see it?
0: Yeah. That makes sense. And how about Amazon ads? Do you think that is in the mode of this customer obsession philosophy that you've talked about and Bezos obviously lives?
1: Yeah, it's a little tricky. So, so what's really interesting is if you think theoretically about a marketplace, you know, what, what do customers want? They want selection and value. So the Amazon marketplace is designed to highlight low prices. Well, it's interesting. So let's compare it to Google. Google's an ad model. If you go over to Google Shopping, you'll realize it's not a really great experience because what happens is the people that, you know, in, over there, you're looking at who can pay the most for ads. Well, the people that can pay the most for ads have the most margin in their product and therefore, by definition, not the lowest prices. So you go to Google and you'll see like, you know, Um, I don't know, Macy, you know, pick on anybody and you'll be like, yeah, you know, that just doesn't feel like the best kind of offer for that product. And then you see some like really random stuff and you're like, that feels fraudulent. (laughs) And, you know, so, so one of the innovations in the Amazon model around advertising is they do have this rule that you can't be, you can't advertise the product unless you own the buy box. So that's really interesting middle ground of these two things that essentially says, look, you have to have the best offer for this before you can now advertise it. That being said I do feel like you know that the dial has probably swung a little over to the side of it being kind of a noisy experience on a lot of Amazon things that you go buy. If you go into some of it's some of it's okay. So so if you're buying kind of like a pretty standard product I think it's fine. But if you go into the world of like iPhone batteries or any kind of accessories it, it has very much cluttered the experience, I feel like. So So I, I feel like that, that pendulum, there's probably too many pixels over on the ad side and they need to swing that back a little bit.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because Bezos talks a lot about one-way door decisions and two-way door decisions. And so the yeah. implementation of ads very much feels initially like a two-way door decision, right? You could always walk it back. But on the flip side, you become reliant on, I think it's like 14 or $15 billion of high margin ad revenue. And that's helping to fund the R&D budget. I'm interested to follow how it plays out.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think it's cluttery because it's kind of in that third-party seller world where there's a lot of noise. The best ads I've seen, and, and I think they had to do that to jumpstart the network, the best ads I've seen are, you know, you're shopping for, uh, I don't know, some kind of lotion or something, and then now there's a brand and they have that kind of headline ad, you know, over at the top that introduces you to the brand for that kind of a thing. That feels like really good context as a user. It's kind of educational. Hey, I didn't know about this brand. And it's not just kind of like integrated in the search results. So, so I think they kind of, they had to get there. Um, and I think we're going to see a lot more of that kind of things. It's really interesting. So, so I do an e-commerce podcast and, and obviously a channel advisor. And what what you find is um, something like 70% of consumers, no, no matter where they're going to end up buying it, um, they start their purchase decision at Amazon now. So Amazon has become the search engine for products, right? Um, and it's because of the rich catalog, the reviews, and that kind of thing. So we have customers. There's a famous one um, that's in, uh, let's see, it's called Durrell Juvenile. They own all the, the car seat companies like Graco and Cock. Costco and these kinds of things. They did an experiment where they, they kind of took all their brand dollars out of TV and everything and just put it on Amazon and they could actually measure downstream at Walmart and Costco, the impact of those Amazon ads. So, so I think brand advertisers haven't really discovered the full power of the Amazon thing. I think right now in their minds, it's driving Amazon sales and I think Amazon ultimately will get really smart at, at, at helping people understand that no, you can actually drive downstream Yes, it drives Amazon. Yes, it drives other online and it drives brick and mortar sales of your
0: product. Wow. I think that's
1: where it's going to get to and that's not going to be nearly as spammy as, you know, hey, look at my crappy iPhone case kind of thing.
0: Right. Yeah, it's such an interesting problem, right? Because Amazon's algorithm, as you said, it's like selection price and convenience, but with infinite shelf space, Discovery and curation are the limiting factors and so um, right now it's like an endless sea of merchandise and you have a search bar and some filters and then these ads to kind of sift through that and so I'll be curious to see if another upstart can come in and really solve that discovery or curation piece.
1: Yeah, yeah. There's an angle there. The counter example, though, is so. You know, Amazon has this huge affiliate program. They call it the Associate Program. So if you if you kind of watch these influencers out there, um, a lot of them will start with these niche kind of things, but then they'll realize, you know, just like everyone else, they get addicted to this business model, right? And for them to scale, they need more revenue, and ultimately they'll all gravitate towards talking about Amazon products, Nordstrom, some some of the bigger kind of retailers because that's where the richer revenue shares are and and the richer kind of downstream monetizations are. So, so in a way those can be the discovery engine is all these little influencers out there talking about the best iPhone case or the best black dress or whatnot.
0: Absolutely. Um, And then you mentioned Google shopping and yesterday, I think they transitioned or they announced the transition to more of a free listing model. Um, So any merchant can really list inventory. Do you think that is a big deal that will move the needle at all? Or do you think it's mostly noise?
1: It's interesting. And you know what what someone needs to do is, so you've got this huge kind of Death Star on one side of the universe, which is Amazon, right? And someone needs to form a rebellion, I'm a Star Wars fan. And you know, a lot of people have tried this, FedEx has tried it, this this company Shoprunner that's tried it. You know, I think it needs to be like a Google level thing where you essentially say, look, we're gonna combine efforts over here and really kind of provide a counter to Amazon. The problem with all these approaches is Amazon has, you know, call it 150 fulfillment centers and each of those costs like 200 million. So uh, I can't do the math on that. Was that like $25 billion worth of fulfillment centers? Just put that in context. Walmart.com has like 10 fulfillment centers. So if, if fast free shipping is important, Amazon is so far ahead and Google is so squarely caught in the innovators dilemma. So Google actually has the bucks to go out there and say, I'm going to build $22 billion worth of fulfillment centers the, you know, their stock would go down by like 90% though, because they've gotten Wall Street addicted to these 85, 90, 95% gross margins. So by definition, they could, they could compete with Amazon, but they're pretty locked in this innovator's dilemma where I think to really fight Amazon, you're going to have to build out fulfillment infrastructure to to counter their user experience. And no one's going to invest that kind of money now. So it feels like it's going to be an interesting effort and maybe there's some traction by kind of coalescing these competitors, but it's always just going to smash up against the side of the giant Death Star that has got all this, this capability.
0: And then transitioning to COVID-19, how do you think that impacts the retail and e-commerce landscape? So, I mean, the first order effect, I think you mentioned that uh, penetration of e-commerce may go from 15 to the mid twenties, but what do you think the second or even third order effects may be?
1: Yeah. So what, what COVID doing is accelerating trends we already saw. So on the, on the positive side, you know, there's kind of digital groceries and e-commerce groceries that a lot of people experiment with that. And now everyone's using it. It's kind of maxed out. So like Instacart, Prime now, Amazon fresh, all these offerings shipped, they're just maxed out, right? They, they weren't ready to go from five, 5% utilization to 40%, but they'll catch up. Um, so that those are on the positive side. Amazon, you know, I, I expect is gonna just have a tremendous quarter Q one and Q two from this because it's almost like every day is prime day. They've they've said something like that. You know, if you look at the traffic levels and whatnot. The counterexample is another trend that was happening in retail was what I call mallageddon. So if we think about this convenience-oriented consumer, there's also the value-oriented consumer. So dollar stores and wholesale clubs do really well. And then Amazon and Instacart do well. If you're neither value or convenience oriented today, you're really in this kind of Death Quadrant. And, you know, so the three companies I'm not sure are going to make it out of this are Sears and JCPenney for sure. We saw Neiman Marcus is going to file for bankruptcy. Macy's, you know, they're they're in a really tough spot. So, you know, I think you're going to see these mall-based retailers really, really struggle to come out of this and reopen. And they're going to look very different when they do. And then that's going to make it hard for the mall operators. You know, what are they going to, what are they going to look like? it's going to be really interesting to see what happens to malls over time. I think, I think that death quadrant is is really accelerated and we're going to see some really big failures this year.
0: Got it. And then transitioning to podcasting. So you mentioned you do the Jason and Scott show and I think you've been doing it since late 2015 and you also have been doing the vehicle 2.0 podcast. Um, why did you start podcasting and what have you learned over the past four or five years?
1: Yeah, I, You know, I've always enjoyed doing thought leadership because it's a fun problem to me to be able to take something pretty complex and be able to, you have to really understand it really well to then articulate it, simplify it back out. So, so, you know, the way I would do that before 2015 is uh, a lot of uh, blog posts and those kinds of things. When Channel Advisor went public, writing a blog went from fun to like a total hassle because, you know, now you've got IR, PR, HR, you know, 800 people have to chime in. And by the time you write it, you know, six weeks have gone by and it's, it's no fun just to be able to blast your thoughts out there. (laughs) So podcasting was kind of a good escape because, and, and also I think people don't read long form content anymore. So it was kind of a good time to pivot to something that was less cumbersome and, and more, more easy to Put out there. So the, the way it worked is uh, my, my podcast partner, Jason Goldberg, and I were on a board of shop.org together. And after these meetings, we would go grab a beer or dinner. Um, and I would learn a ton from him because he's like an omni channel guy and he does payments and I don't get involved in those worlds. I'm over on the marketplace side. And he would say, explain to me, you know, how this Amazon ad system works. And so, so we'd learned so much from each other because we were in the same space, but in different enough areas. And I made an offhand comment. I was like, you know, we should do a podcast on this because, you know, I feel like we should capture all this stuff that, that, that we're both learning. And then like, you know, two days later he called and was like, I got all this stuff. We're going to launch a podcast. And so we've been doing it for five years ever since then. So the moral of that story is: be careful what you kind of throw out there as an idea because it, it can kind of come back to to be a long term investment. Hundred percent. Yeah, but seriously, we really enjoy it. We do it weekly, and you know, we have a lot of guests like you're doing. We do a lot of news. There's the good news is that you know, between e-commerce, retail, and Amazon, there's never a shortage of things to talk about. If anything, we could we could like triple the frequency and still have plenty to cover. So so that's the hard thing is kind of finding time to do it at least an hour a week.
0: Yeah, And then you also mentioned um, taking channel advisor public and some of the uh, kind of downsides to being a public company. There's, it's been well documented that the number of public companies in the U.S. has kind of been on a decline, particularly in the small and micro cap space over the past 20 years. There's more access to private capital in terms of late stage venture, growth equity, private equity, et cetera, and then also increased regulations with Sarbanes-Oxley. Um, what have you learned or like, what have you learned, I guess, being the CEO for a couple of years and then being in a board role of a small cap public company?
1: Yeah, there's pros and cons, you know, so the pro is you raise money. So I think we raised, um, 50 to 60 million in our IPO and then another like 30 or 40 in the, um, in the, the second offering. So, you know, that, that's the good side, um, there, there's a lot of shareholders that are a lot of fun to talk to. So there's, you know, when, when you look at who invests in public companies, you have kind of a several buckets. You have kind of these, these mutual funds, which are typically long only uh, so that they're, they're not going to be shorting your stock. And then you have hedge funds. And, you know, so I always enjoyed the mutual fund folks because they really want to understand the business. They want to talk about trends and then they're going to, you know, if they, you know, if it fits, they're going to buy and hold for five years and you're going to have a relationship. It's a lot like the VC kind of a thing in a, in a way. And then um, the, the hedge funds, you know, a lot of them are, are great folks too, but then there's this kind of like, you know, 5% of those guys that are, they're always just trying to kind of, Get over on you, and you know, and I always thought, you know, okay, they're going to go after, you know, again. I'm a CNBC junkie, so you see these guys, Carl Icahn, you know, he's going to go into this company and he's going to go into eBay and tell them that PayPal has to come out. I always thought that they would pick on those kind of mega cap kind of companies. But there's this group of hedge funds that love to pick on smaller companies. And there's, you know, the, the thing I never realized is, so they're they're kind of trying to make, get you to make a mistake, kind of like we all know about fake news now, you know, where they'll just like get you to say something and cut it off, or there's a million different ways you can do this. So there's that. So when you're talking to them, you're like always on edge that there's a trap. <laughs> uh, but then the other thing they do that I would not have guessed uh, as an outsider until I was in the middle of it is. So, so every company has to go through this quiet period. So there's these rules about, you know, once you know, so for example, channel is in a quiet period now, because I think they announced their results in like early May, um, but they obviously know the results of the first quarter. So that's the quiet period and you're not supposed to go out and talk about anything well, all the hedge funds know this. So what they'll do is in that quiet period, they'll put out some accusation about you or they'll do something even lighter weight. Like uh, there's this one group that what they do is they organize these customer calls. What they'll do is they'll go find every, unhappy customer you've ever had. You know, let's say you have 3,000 customers and there's five that are unhappy. They'll get them all on a conference call and it'll just be like this hammering away that your company's terrible, you suck, uh, et cetera. And then there's no way you can really respond to that in this quiet period. So what they'll do is they'll put a short on your stock. They'll run this. This is all legal, which always surprises me. (laughs) They'll they'll put a short on your stock. They'll run this conference call and this whole anti-PR campaign they'll drive down your stock during this quiet period and you're just sitting there like unable to respond to it and then by the time you can they're out and they've kind of executed their strategy but you know they've made all their money which is great for them but they've kind of destroyed your brand so as someone that builds something like going through that cycle after cycle is just like Ooh, it's it's kind of pretty painful to be the CEO of a public company, you're just going to have to allocate a big chunk of your time talking to those shareholders and these analysts, and you know there's just an amount immense amount of time spent on that. And and I love to spend my time talking to customers and building stuff. So so it's really it's really kind of more of the stage of the company thing than being a public company. But there's there's some negatives there that I, I was kind of shocked by.
0: Yep. And go, having gone through that experience and then putting on an, an investor hat, what would be some of your favorite questions to ask management teams? so one of the traps of being a public company is it, it
1: does create this short term thinking. So I like asking people longer term questions to see how they're thinking about things like over a, you know, it doesn't have to be 10 years, but over a two to five year period. And, you know, to me when I invest in public companies, I'm taking that long-term approach um, and I'm I'm not a day trader. I'm not looking for, you know, oh my God, this drug just went to the FDA. I'm going to make 30% in one day and then be in and out or I'm going to go short. Or Where I've made the most of my money uh, in the stock market is kind of saying, yeah, I could see that, you know, over the next five years that that's not going to change. Like I bought the Google IPO and you still, so, on so it? I, I, uh, I do. Yeah. Yeah. one, Yeah. I can't remember 20 X or something. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I didn't. Uh, I wish I invested more. Uh, hindsight's twenty <laughs> twenty. Yeah, so I, I'm, I, I'm a long term thinker, so I like folks that can answer those long term kind of questions. And, and you, you know, it's actually increasingly hard to find
0: um, public companies that that talk about that. Yeah, I think it also creates an opportunity though, because so few investors are focused on anything but next quarter's earnings. Yeah, um, I want to shift a little bit. Uh, you've talked previously about how you're an introvert and you've tried to step out of that kind of comfort comfort zone and develop skill sets in presenting and persuasion and storytelling i mean aside from just increasing the reps what are some tactics or advice that you can give me to improve those in those areas yeah public speaking is probably the best one because it's so far
1: out there yeah <laughs> so as an introvert like i can handle one-on-one conversations so so that's fine right uh, and then you know, the public speaking is just kind of like such a hard thing to do. If you just do it over and over again and you get good at it, then then you, you kind of, that totally helps you get over the whole introvert thing. So the extent you can do some public speaking, that's good. There's actually this group, Toastmasters. So there's some kind of, I haven't done it, but there's a cycle where you go and people present like some percentage of the people present and then you have a prompt for the next time. And then it's all positive feedback, which is good. So, you know, you're in kind of a safe, safe area. So I think that would be a really good way because then a lot of people like, all right, you want me to do more public speaking. Well, how do I, how do I do that? Yeah, that Toastmasters thing is a good programmatic way to do it.
0: Very cool. Um, so now let's transition to the research triangle area. So I think you did your masters at NC state and you're wearing the gear now. Um, and that was kind of in the 90, 91 time frame. And then, um, after a short stint in the Northeast, you moved back kind of in the mid nineties. So what do you love about the triangle and why have you decided to make it home for the past 25 years?
1: Yeah. So, so I'm from South Carolina, so I love the Southeast. I love warm weather and I love just kind of, you know, the, the people, the friendly people, the hospitality, of the South, the lower cost, you know, again, I spent a lot of time in the Bay area and New York and Boston and those areas and they're nice to visit, but then you like, you know, I wonder what a, you know, a bed, you know, a, a two bedroom house is like here in Silicon Valley. And it's like, you know, a million and a half dollars. And, you know, you look at the square footage and you're like, wait, it says 3000 square feet. That seems large. And then you're like, oh, that's the yard. The yard's measured in square feet. So I love this area, the southeast for quality of life, and, and what's great about the triangle is it's this perfect intersection of that that southern quality of life, high tech, but we're not like obsessive high tech like Silicon Valley. at Silicon Valley, there's actually a big movement of people leaving there. Uh, Tim Ferriss, another podcaster, kind of famously left because you know everything is about high tech. You go into Starbucks and someone will pitch you a Bitcoin startup, and you're just like, I'm just here to have a coffee. So you know, so 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 I think we have you know, this really nice diversified, um, everything's diversified in the triangle, which is good. So we've got, you know, a lot of people from different countries, we've got all kinds of different genders, and we've got all kinds of different universities. We've got the flavor of the three universities here, which is nice. We've got the diversities of the places you can live. So, you know, Chapel Hill and Carborough are one experience versus Raleigh or Durham, which is another experience versus Holly Springs or Apex or Nightdale. So if you want five acres and goats, that's great. If you want a downtown experience and to walk to a hipster coffee shop and go to see live music, we got that too. So so that's what I love about the triangle is is the diversity that we have in such a small area.
0: Fantastic. Um, and so now let's just finish up with some non-business related questions. I believe in the past, maybe a few years ago, you said on average, you sleep four to six hours a night. How do you think about sleep in relation to both productivity and creativity?
1: Yeah. And this is counterintuitive and probably really bad advice, but you know, there, there's a, a, definitely a big movement that you need to eat to 10 hours of sleep to be healthy. And, and that's probably right. But the way I've always viewed the world is you only have so many hours and when you're sleeping, you're super unproductive. So, so for that reason I kind of hate sleep, it's just kind of a necessary evil. So I've, I've kind of chewed away at minimizing it over time. Um, it's probably super unhealthy. And again, I don't recommend it to, to listeners, but what's cool about it is it does allow you to, you know, it almost feels like you're, you're living two lives because, you know, there'll be this chunk of time and then, you know, people always say, how do you do all this stuff? Well, it's because I just sleep less and I have, I can do a full-time job, some, some side stuff and a podcast. Uh, if I didn't do all that, then, you know, all I could do is my full-time job. So, so it is a way to kind of squeeze more out of, out of your day.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's something I'm struggling with. One, like the health aspect, but two, I think when I get more sleep, I'm more creative, but there is that productivity aspect where I'm losing hours in the day. Yeah. Also, I think your dad was a startup guy, which is one of the reasons why you gravitated towards that industry. How did you approach um, this with your kids? Did you steer them towards or away from entrepreneurship?
1: Yeah. So, um, so my dad was an entrepreneur and um, he did a carpet inventory system. So it was kind of interesting. He had developed it. He did some consulting and developed it for a customer and then sold it, then ultimately sold it to DuPont. It's kind of funny. I didn't think I wanted to go into entrepreneurship until I had a boss. And then I was kind of like, this, this kind of sucks. (laughs) you know, this guy's making some really bad decisions and he's a terrible manager and wow, uh, I think I could do better myself. Um, so there's a little bit of an arrogance ego thing there, I guess that, that comes along with that. So, you know, I think what's important with my kids is I want them to find their own path. And if it's entrepreneurship, that's great. And if not, then I totally understand it. You know, the good news is there's, there's a lot more cool places to work than there were when I came out of school. When I came out of school, it was like IBM, Motorola, And that was kind of like, you know, there's like three or four big companies and that was it. But now, you know, if you went to work at Amazon, that's gonna be, you know, or Google or any of these other companies, that's gonna be, you know, a really good experience also, even compared to maybe even a startup. So, So I think there's this really good set of experiences now for folks that even do have an entrepreneurial mindset that aren't as stark as, you know, selling your soul to this big company for the rest of your life or going out on your own right out of school so I think there's a lot of good areas in between. Whereas when I graduated, those were kind of like the two offerings.
0: Yeah, And then you're also a voracious reader and I think your mom was a librarian. How have you tried to instill a love of reading in your kids?
1: Yeah. What in my mind, what stamps out a love of reading is, um, kind of all these, uh, over analysis of, (laughs) of things. So, so when I, you know, whenever you read a book and then like you had to go to English class and they're like, you know, but what's really happening? You're just like, you know, this is a story I saw. I didn't see all that other stuff. Um, in a way it kind of like is frustrating because you're, you know, I never saw all those hidden meanings that, you know, when this guy got rained on, it was a baptism. I'm just like, well, what if it was just rain? Um, so, so we've, we've tried to kind of like have a healthy, healthy, you know, keep it light and easy. You know, this isn't, you know, an analyzing, you know, uh, of mice and men and that kind of thing. They'll get that at school. So, you know, the good news is there's so much really good fiction out that kids love. Like the Harry Potter series has been a huge gateway into reading for, for so many kids. Um, and then there's like the Rick Riordan series. There's, there's a lot of really good series now. And a series is a great way to get you addicted. Um, and it kind of ties in with binge, you know, this kind of binge culture of binge watching something, if they can kind of really get into something, then then that's a good way to get them going.
0: Fantastic. Well, that's a great place to start to wrap up. Scott, I really enjoyed this conversation. Um, thank you for all the time this morning. Thanks for all the generosity, kind of sharing your insights and ideas. And I also want to thank you for everything you do for the North Carolina startup ecosystem. You've kind of paved the way for a whole bunch of entrepreneurs, and then you also give all of us introverts hope. So, one more question before we go: What is your favorite restaurant in the Triangle area?
1: So, you know, another awesome thing about the Triangle is we have so many choices. Um, I live in Raleigh, so so I'm kind of biased towards the Raleigh ones. Although Durham and Chapel Hill have great restaurants, also it's just they're a little further away, so I don't get to them as much. So, I would say um, our our current favorite is Garland uh, in Raleigh. So it's this kind of interesting. Uh, the lady that started is uh, of Indian descent uh, and then she's also a rock star, which is kind of cool. So she's a, a rocker uh, restaurant tour. So that's a nice combo. Um, so it has a really cool vibe. And then she's just the, uh, you know, she does this kind of cool fusion stuff with, with different things that you wouldn't think you would like. Like they have uh, this cauliflower that's to die for and I'm not a huge cauliflower guy. And then they have a lot of other Indian style meals, but with kind of an American
0: Asian bent to them that are really fascinating. That sounds amazing. I'll definitely check that out.
1: Yeah, when we can go back to restaurants, we'll, we'll have to get out there.
0: <laughs> Excellent. Well, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much, Scott. <laughs> thanks for having me, Steve, and thanks everyone for listening. Carolina stories, And that's a wrap. As always, you can find me on Twitter at SVafier or on LinkedIn. I'll be back soon with some new episodes in the weeks ahead. Have a great week.